the culmination of my academic career in, as a student in Miss Henry's sixth grade English class was to write a research paper. It was three entire pages long. Uh, when you're 12 years old, uh, three pages is a massive project. I learned uh, after a few semesters in seminary that I could write three pages about my left earlobe. Uh, but in sixth grade, in sixth grade, three pages is a novel. Uh, we could choose any topic we wanted, and I chose to write a biography of Jesus Christ. I think I did it, well, I wrote from a thoroughly evangelical perspective and probably with some evangelistic intentions. Uh, despite uh, my worries about it, I didn't have trouble filling three pages. The problem came when I had to prepare my bibliography. We were supposed to write down on a piece of paper every source from which we had learned anything about our chosen topic. Now, I had been born and bred in Sunday school. And Miss Henry wanted us to write down the name of any book or any person who had ever given us any information about the topic. Uh, so I started. My list was long. I wrote down the name of my pastor. Uh, then I started listing my Sunday school teachers. Irma Dengler, Laura Lounsbury, Rodney Haynes, Sharon Howden. Rodney Haynes uh, was a team teacher. He team taught the junior class with uh, Sharon Howden. He was, um, <laughs> frankly, Rodney Haynes was a, a fine man, but a bit of a nerd. He had, he had, he had a pocket protector with 47 shades of ink in, in all the pens. And, and he had a suit that he would wear. It was a marvel to behold. It was maroon. Everything was maroon. The, the socks, the shoes, the pants, the jacket, the shirt, the sweater, the tie. Uh, everything was maroon, but a slightly different shade of maroon. Uh, he, he was a bit of a nerd, but he, he, he cared about us. Um, every year when I was in high school, Rodney Haynes would take any high school student who wanted to to uh, Cedarville. He'd get a van, we'd pile in it, he'd drive us out there uh, for a, a college weekend to visit. And those weekends were really crucial in my decision to go to that school, which was one of the most important decisions that I made, and he helped facilitate that. On my paper, I wrote down the names of uh, Bill and Carol Lapp. Bill and Carol Lapp used to teach uh, a junior church a lot, and Bill would tell stories. He was a great storyteller, and Carol, who was an art teacher in school, would draw uh, pictures, um, draw the story out on the chalkboard, and we would sit there fascinated looking at what she was going to draw on the, the board. Uh, George and Marilyn Deaton. George Deaton was one of the deacons. I remember being interviewed by him when I joined the church, and his wife Marilyn used to teach. She was a fine teacher, and when she was done with her flannel graph, she'd take it all and she'd put it into photo albums, and she would stand in front of us and review by showing us all the pictures of the stories that she had told us. I wrote all these names down, dozen, dozen more names. My research paper was three pages. My bibliography was four pages. Now, I'm not telling you these names this morning uh, with, uh, so to give me a chance to reminisce or to make you think that my childhood is nothing but uh, happy memories with wonderful people. Nobody, not even Opie himself, grew up in Mayberry. Uh, maybe, though, as I think about significant people like this, you will think about significant people in your life, uh, Sunday school teachers, a scout leader, a, a piano teacher, a coach, maybe a neighbor. 
It's good to think about people like that in your life, but this morning, actually what I'm interested in doing is I want to encourage you to accept the responsibility to be that sort of person. The sort of person who opens your life to, to someone else for their good, for your own good. Not just children that you can help along the way, but, but friends, peers, people within and with outside of your comfort zone. I want to encourage you to be that sort of person because your vision for that, your understanding of the role that people play in one another's lives indicates the extent to which you understand the message of the book of Ephesians. You can tell if you really got what Paul has said by how you think about the men and women who are sitting around you right now. And if you never think about them at all except on Sunday morning or you only think about them because they're sitting in your pew, (laughs) I have one more chance this morning from this epistle to uh, change your mind. My Bible is open to Ephesians chapter 6, and I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn there if you would, please. Ephesians chapter 6, specifically, I want to direct your attention to Ephesians 6, verses 21 to 24. Uh, According to my records, we started in Ephesians on September 11, 2011, and here we are 13 months later. uh, We come to the last four verses of this book. Um, Typical of Paul's style, in the end of his book, he ends with a uh, letter-like comment, specific greetings and instructions and, and a benediction. Now, sometimes we're inclined to skip Uh, passages like this, they're just personal greetings. Maybe. They're personal greetings, but everything he says in these verses is built on the foundation of what he has already written. These words are personal, but they're also purposeful. They're instructive. They're culminating. They're conclusive. So we're going to devote some time to them this morning. Let's read from Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 21 to 24. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I, how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. This is a very conventional ending to one of Paul's letters. Uh, In fact, it's almost identical word for word to uh, the ending of the book of Colossians. And because it's a very common ending, you might be tempted to miss something here. But if if it's not too bold a statement, I think your appreciation for these verses somewhat reflects your understanding of what the rest of the book is about. Or how clearly, how much you really get what the New Testament is really calling us to when it calls us to follow Christ. The reason I say that here is because Paul is speaking personally, he's applying personally to his life and the Ephesians' life the things that he has written about here. That's most clear in verses 21 and 22. This is how Paul applies his own book. And then here, in verses 23 and 24, there's summary words. In a few words, Paul captures, he encapsulates everything he's been talking about so far in the book of Ephesians. Um, I want to label this this section of Ephesians 
uh, this way, concluding clarity on what it means to follow Christ. That's how I'm going to kind of summarize it. And I want you to see two practical implications here of what we mean when we talk about living as a Christian. Uh, I think they're going to be evident from the text, and I hope this morning they'll be helpful as, as well. Uh, let's start here. Following Christ means sharing your life with fellow believers. Sharing your life with fellow believers. Now, as, as Paul puts his finishing touches on this letter here, he is in prison. And he mentions here for the first time in this letter an associate whose name was Tychicus. He sounds like a character that C.S. Lewis would have put in the Chronicles of Narnia. We don't know much about Tychicus. He's mentioned uh, three other places in the Bible. Uh, he seems to be the New Testament's letter carrier. He delivered this letter to Ephesus. He delivered the letter of Colossians uh, to the Colossians to Colossae. He delivered Philemon. Uh, he went with Paul. When Paul was in Ephesus, he, as he left, Tychicus went with him. So some people think that Tychicus was from Ephesus. He um, delivered the letter of 2 Timothy to Timothy, and he delivered the letter of Titus to Titus. Uh, he was a faithful man. I'm, I'm thankful for Tychicus, because if he wasn't faithful to carry these letters, we might not have them in the New Testament. And Paul was grateful for him. He calls him a dear brother and a faithful servant. Now, you're familiar with this, perhaps, if you've read any of the New Testament books. Paul often ends his letters with these personal greetings, people he knows, people he's talked to, people he's encouraged. And when you read the edges of the New Testament, you might start to wonder, did, Paul, did the Apostle Paul ever have any alone time? He seems like he was with people all the time. You can compile a huge list of men and women that Paul identifies as partners and co-workers and teammates. And here he sends Tychicus to Ephesus for a very specific reason. He wants them to know what he is doing, or more specifically, the text says, how I'm doing. The what is pretty easy. He's sitting in prison. The how, that's the important part, actually. And Tychicus expects, Paul expects, that when Tychicus goes to the church and says, let me tell you what Paul's doing or how Paul is doing, he expects that it would encourage them. Now, I find this to be uh, a stunning and uh, incredible challenge. There's a calling in the New Testament that I share with the Apostle Paul. Every man in a congregation who has given authority to lead a church also shares this responsibility. It's the task of modeling, serving as an example. This is part of Paul's of sharing life. Paul's life is open and he expects the Ephesians to be encouraged by how he is enduring. Paul is in prison and you'll be encouraged to know how he's doing, what he's thinking, what he spends his time doing, what, how he sees God at work in his imprisonment. You'll incur- be encouraged by that. The challenge for I, I find about that is, is to think about my life. Oh, let's think for a moment about your life here. And the people that you share it with. Some people you share it with by choice. Some people you share it with out of necessity. How, how would you finish this sentence? If, if uh, Speaking to those who watch you. You will be encouraged by how I endure. How would you finish that? Paul writes to the Ephesians, I'm sending tickets, he's going to tell you about me, and you will be encouraged by how I am enduring prison. How would you finish that sentence? You would be encouraged by how I am enduring infertility. Because you'll see my confidence in God. 
you'll be encouraged by how I'm enduring unemployment, how I'm enduring grief, how I'm enduring chronic pain. Whatever you put in that sentence, sharing your life as a model doesn't mean that you speak of your life as if it's roses. I'm sure Tychicus didn't go to the people and say, oh, Paul doesn't care about being in prison at all. He's so happy. I'm sure that's not what he said. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, I was so discouraged that I wanted to die. But then he says, even in the midst of it, though, I knew that God was at work in my life. You will be encouraged by how I endure. What do you fill in that blank in your life? And and who's watching? Who you're sharing that with? Sharing life is is one of the ways that we follow Christ. And the Bible tells us why. It's it's full of reasons why following Christ means that you share life. Um, I I just want to mention a a couple of them here. One of of the reasons why this is so important to Paul is, is theological. Um, God exists as a life sharer. That's what we mean when we speak about God as Trinity. God is community Himself. He's the three in one. Our God is, exists one God who eternally exists as three persons. And when we turn to Him, He invites us into the community that is Himself. It's astounding. Uh, because she's now in fourth grade, my daughter Claire is eligible to take instrumental lessons at school. Uh, before lessons started, before she even picked out an instrument, they invite uh, all, all the parents and their fourth grade students to the high school for an informational night so you can learn about instruments. And we walked into the high school auditorium, and you probably know the first thing that I thought when, when I passed through the doors, I thought as I was looking around, do I know anybody here? So anybody here in this room that I know that I, that I can sit with, where am I going to sit? Is it going to be near anybody that I know? Do you ever ask that question when you walk into a room? You probably do a lot, I bet. Do I know anybody in this room? Uh, frankly, uh, when we go to school uh, events, when, when we do, uh, my answer to the question is, uh, do I know anybody here? Often the, question, the answer is no. Uh, we've lived in Lancaster County for 13 years, our children, though, are still uh, relatively young. Uh, and and I, what really ties you to those community events is, is your kids. You get to know people through your kids. Don't, aren't some of your friends the people that came through your children? Well, uh, the, the great thing and the hard thing about Lancaster County for people coming outside in, the great thing and the hard thing about people who live here is that none of you ever leave. Normal people move. That is, uh, they go to new places where they meet new people and they have to make new friends. Many Lancastrians, when they walk into a high school auditorium, know lots of people because uh, it's been 10 years, but they graduated with high school for many of them. Or their brother dated one of their cousins or something. There's some connection there. Um... That's not normal in the world. Can I just say that? It's wonderful. It's just not normal. Now, I'm telling you that not so you feel sorry for me, so that, you know, I don't, you don't need to accompany me to school events. I can handle it, all right? I'll be all right. But I, I want you to think about that because people walk into our church, new people walk into our church, and they ask, do I know anybody here? 
Now, this is Manor Township, so the answer is usually yes. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's not yes for everybody. And, and they ask that question the next time they come. Do I, know, do I still know anybody here? Do I know? That? And af, after a number of weeks, the answer continues to be no. They're not going to keep coming back. Now, uh, you walk into a room, and, and if, if, you, if you say, if, do I know anybody here? You ask that question, and the answer is no. What do you do? You kind of sit on the edge with all the other people, two or three chairs away from the other people who don't know anybody either. And maybe in your strangerness there, there can be some camaraderie, because neither of you know anybody. That happens sometimes. Ideally, though, is, is it when, you, when you walk into a room and, and you see people and, oh, there's five people that I know. And you just walk up to them and they say, oh, we're so good. To be, it's great to see you. We're happy that you're here. That, that's the best way to walk into a room, isn't it? Well, the Bible tells us that to become a follower of Jesus Christ is to be welcomed into the fellowship that is God himself. What we have in common as followers of Jesus Christ is that God has invited us into his life. And it's a shared life. We share life with one another because it's in our DNA as followers of Jesus Christ. We share life for theological reasons because God is a life sharer, but we, we share life with one another for practical reasons too. You cannot do what God calls you to do alone. We spent several weeks walking through Ephesians chapter 4, didn't we? In Ephesians 4.17, Paul starts and he talks about holiness. Walking in holiness. And that holiness in Ephesians 4 always demands other people. Speaking truthfully, forgiving, encouraging, expressing patience. You can't be holy the way God wants you to be holy by yourself. Do you spend a lot of time alone? I, I do, by virtue of my job, I, I spend a lot of time alone, reading, studying, thinking, planning, praying. Some of you with young children, you're, you're thinking to yourself, I haven't been alone in 14 years. <laughs> Frankly, when I'm alone, I am a paragon of virtue. When I'm alone, I'm patient, I'm charitable, I'm kind, I'm gracious, I'm forgiving, I'm amiable. But then telemarketers call the church, and they just make me mad. I'm short. You're bothering me. <laughs> One time I was a little too short because somebody said, are you sure I called Grace Baptist Church? <laughs> when I'm alone, I'm a paragon of virtue. And then I go home, and there are these demanding little children there. And my patience starts to crack, and my cherubic nature is tested. You cannot really be holy like God intended alone. You may have some sort of spiritual facade, but it is not real holiness. Because the real holiness that God calls us to is holiness that interacts with other people and, and forgiveness and kindness and encouragement overflow. Now, if what, I'm hearing, if what I'm saying here about Paul's model of a shared life is true, what keeps you from embracing it more fully? What, what keeps you from opening your life more? I, I can hear some of you are saying, I don't have time. I don't have time. Maybe some of you are afraid or you're, you're filled with fears opposite 
pride. You don't want to say with Paul, watch my life and see how I endure this because it's, it's not worth, it's not going to encourage anybody. Fear, pride, busyness. Do you know all problems like that? They are not solved in big steps. You are not going to, with one fell swoop, remove fear from your life or pride from your life. They, that Overcoming those things happens slowly. Small steps. What were you going to say, what will you say to someone after church that would reflect today your commitment to living a shared life? Are, are you going to make a phone call this week that will in some way indicate that commitment? Open your life. Paul takes great pains to open his life. I am sending you someone who's been with me and he can describe in great detail what is going on with me and how I am doing. These great pains because following Christ demands that we share life with one another. Now, there's a second point of clarity here that I, that I want to make to direct your attention to what it means to following Christ here. And I'm going to describe it that way. this way. It means filling your life with foundational values. Filling your life with foundational values. Now, let me tell you how not to read verses 23 and 24. Do not read verses 23 and 24 like they're a greeting card. Some of you I know, you go and you buy a card for an occasion... And you go to the store and you very carefully read every card and you read every line and you're looking for the card that has just the right sentiment that exactly expresses just what you want to say. Others of you, when you go to the store, you're looking for the few key words. Birthday, happy, love, something like that. It's, it's, those are the key words. Uh, I mentioned the name before, you, uh, before to you, Albert Moeller. Albert Moeller, um, I learned a lot from him. I try not to, though, to follow his example and how he described once the purchase of a birthday card for his wife. Um, by all accounts, he and his wife Mary have a very happy marriage. They've been married a long time. They have two children, um, and he's a very happily married man. He'd been married a long time at one point in time uh, when his schedule was out of hand, and he realized late in the day that the next day was his wife's birthday. Well, uh, he ran out to buy her a card, and the only open place that he could find was a gas station, and their selection was limited. But he looked through the few cards that they had there. He found one in his hurry. It had the right words, happy birthday, wife. Uh, and so he grabbed the card and went home, signed it. The next day he gave it to her. She opened the card. She read it, and she looked at him, and she said, Did, did you read this card? <laughs> Gentlemen, there is no good answer at that point in time to that question. There is no safe answer. Uh, because when she asked, your wife knows that, that you did not read the card. She read it to him. The card said something like this in the inside. I love how you have brought our two families together. <laughs> now, don't read these verses because they just have the right combination of words. Look at them. These are important terms, crucial terms. Paul, Paul meant what he said, and these words are to be read with sincerity and content. There are four words here that capture what it means to follow Christ. Peace, love, faith, grace. If you think of being a follower of Jesus Christ in terms other than these four words that don't fit into these four words in some way, you... Uh, uh, have a warped understanding of what it means to follow Christ. Uh, this is election season. 
You know that. You don't need me to tell you that. And when the news media talks about conservative evangelicals, the only word they have, it's not peace, it's not love, it's not faith, it's not... The only word they have is Republican. Uh, depending on the network, if, if you read far enough or follow long enough, you, you, you'll come to other words that people associate with evangelicals. Bigoted. Backward. Hypocrite. We have a reputation, sometimes it's well-deserved, that, that we can be summarized merely by our commitment to morals or merely by a commitment to values. This is not what Paul is communicating, using to communicate here who we are and what we treasure. He's got these words in mind. Peace, grace, love, faith. Peace with God and with one another. That's what he's talking about when he talks about the peace a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that peace is not our natural condition. We do not naturally have peace with God. We have government officials, and they go by the title Justice of the Peace. Justice of the Peace. What's ironic about a Justice of the Peace is that that man, that woman, does not spend very much time with peaceful people, do they? They spend their time with lawyers. And they spend their time with uh, trespassers and thieves and those who are drunk and disorderly. Yet we still call them justices of the peace. Well, the reason we call them justices of the peace is because they're supposed to restore peace. They meet all day with people who have broken peace, and they're supposed to execute justice so that peace can be restored. In this world that God has made, the Bible tells us we are the ones who have broken the peace. We have broken the peace by our rebellion against God, our sinful disinclination, our disinclination, our sinful actions that lead us to turn from God to our own way. And God is a God of justice who will bring about peace. And He does it by enacting perfect justice. And we benefit actually from that perfect justice because of God's grace. Grace is the second word uh, that I want to talk about. It's here in verse 24. Grace. Grace is a major theme of Ephesians. We trumpet, we proclaim it, we sing about it. We love God's grace. We have broken the peace, but the news of grace is that God has restored it. You are the recipient of grace. This is what grace means. You're the recipient of grace if someone at their cost fixes the mess you have made. That's what grace is. Someone else fixes at their cost the mess you have made. The last two years I was in college, I drove a 1983 Crown Victoria. It was powder blue. It was 12 years old when it first came into my possession. Uh, it was falling apart, this car. In fact, um, there were things would fall off the car. I'd pick them up. I'd put them in the trunk. There were almost more parts in the trunk than in the car itself. Uh, I discovered one night that the rear defrost didn't work. Kathy and I had gone out for ice cream at a, at a dairy and uh, I was trying to back out of the spot that I was parked into and I looked very carefully to make sure that no one was behind me. It was hard to see through the fog, but I was pretty sure that there was nobody there until I heard that, that horrible sound, right? That dull thud. I hit somebody. So I, I, I got out of the car and I went and I talked to him and I apologized. I exchanged our information. I drove back to my dorm and then in my dorm, I had to call my parents. Uh, 
that's a terrible feeling, isn't it? There is evidence of the mess you have made in the side of someone's vehicle. And uh, you have to call and you have to confess, I, I needed help. Call my dad. I, t- I talked to him on the phone. Uh, and uh, he asked me for the details. We discussed it. And my father took care of it. He paid to have the door repaired. Now, there's a lot of things that he could have done at that point in time. He could have yelled at me. He could have demanded that I sell my 1983 LTD Crown Victoria to pay for the door repair. It might have covered the cost. (laughs) Uh, He could have said, that's it. I'm disowning you. He could have said that, right? He could have uh, said, well, you made this mess. You fix it. It's not my problem. You figure out something to fix it. All those would have been just decisions, reasonable decisions to make. Instead, I was the recipient of his grace. I had made a mess. I didn't have any resources to fix it on my own. And it cost to himself, he fixed the mess I made. At the cost of his own son, God has fixed the mess we made. His own son bore the penalty that we owed because of our sin. God could demand and God will demand of all those who refuse his son payment that you pay for your own sin. What is the due payment for offense against an infinite holy God? Absolute and infinite death. Infinite separation. Infinite suffering forever. God could demand that and he will from those who reject his son. But in grace... He offers forgiveness and life to all who receive it. We receive it by faith. The third word here Paul uses in verse 23. Peace to the brothers in love with faith. We receive God's love through faith. That is by trusting Him, by turning to Him from whatever we think is satisfying us. Uh, He who is uh, our Maker and our Redeemer, we turn to Him and trust in Him. And today we celebrate Martin Luther's exclamation about his his grand uh, 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 discovery and proclamation of faith in God. And then there's the word love here. Peace to the brothers and love with faith. Harold Honer says that he thinks love is the theme of Ephesians, that reading Ephesians is supposed to make you a more loving person. If you read Ephesians, you don't grow in love, you haven't understood it. Andrew Lincoln said that up to this point in the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul has described for us God's love, Christ's love for us, a believer's love for one another, a husband's love for his wife. This is the first time that Paul talks about uh, uh, our love for Christ. We love Him with an undying love. In a few minutes as we finish, we're going to sing, I love the church. May Christ be praised, preeminent adored. I love the church because I love her Lord. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. These are the virtues that we put on, that we major on and pursue and cling to and express. A couple of weeks ago, I took my kids to the uh, uh, Penn Manor homecoming football game. We had a great time in the evening. Towards the second half of the game, uh, the opposing team put a couple of coaches at the highest point in the stadium, which happened to be a little uh, canopied area right behind the home fans. 
Uh, their presence was immediately apparent in the beginning of the second half because they were doing just the opposite of, of the thousands of fans in front of them. Uh, when when uh, Penn Manor was doing something excellent on the field, everybody in the stands was going, woohoo, woohoo, and they were like standing this. When uh, the opposite team, Mannheim, was, was doing something, was a great pass or great run, uh, the coaches up there were cheering, yes, yes, go, 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 and the rest of us were like... It was evident that they were different, that they were cheering for the other team. They had headphones on. I'm sure they were communicating to somebody down there. Well, after uh, a few cheers from them and, and uh, exclamations from the fans, one guy decided to stand up. Uh, when Penn Manor had done something amazing and turn around to those coaches that were standing up there and he said to them, who do you like that? You see what we did out there? Having a good night? And he kept yelling at them like this. And I thought to myself, there is a guy who has forgotten the purpose of high school football. Purpose of high school football is not to give you an opportunity to yell at men who are trying to build into the lives of teenagers. Purpose of high school football, uh, I'm not sure if high school football players know this. The purpose of high school football is to build into their lives uh, virtues that complement what they're learning in class, it's to make them good students, uh, good citizens, teach young men citizenship, uh, camaraderie. It's to teach them that you don't quit when you want to quit. Discipline, hard work. That, that's what high school football is for. But it's really easy to get distracted, isn't it? It's easy when, when you're in the stands that that makes sense to look at the, the coaches. It's a good play, you know. It makes sense. You lose, you lose your way. It's easy to lose your way with good things. You know, we read through Ephesians and it talks about forgiveness, which is a great virtue. And you think to yourself, oh, now how do I forgive? When do I forgive? What about reconciliation? What if they're not sorry? And what, how do I apologize? And, what? and ask all those questions and forget the fact that God is after peace between his children. That, that's why he talks about forgiveness. Peace. Don't forget that word when you're trying to answer all those questions. And you come to Ephesians 5 and it talks about husbands and wives and what does headship look like? What does submission look like? And what, how do I submit if he's not leading? And how do I lead if she won't submit? And how does all this work, all these questions? And, and it's easy to forget in all those details the fact that God is just reminding a man and his wife, uh, a wife and her husband, that, that you're supposed to be agents of grace in one another's lives. That's what Ephesians 5 is about. Bringing grace to your husband. Bringing grace to your wife. All the instructions in the book of Ephesians, they're about this expression of peace, this celebration of grace, this delight in love that we have because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We forget those at our peril. And Paul's call as he brings this book down is to us to remember. Do, do you get it? Do you understand what it means to follow Christ? It means to celebrate that we have peace with God and, and express it toward one another. To rejoice in that grace. To return that love that we have received by faith. And then opening your life to those around you to share it all. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I am thankful to you uh, for your faithfulness. Here we are at the end of this great book. It is uh, deeper than we have uh, been able to go through even in the 13 months we, we've spent in it. 
I am thankful to you for your kindness to us, that you, by your Spirit, give us understanding in, in what it says. You help us to see and know what it says. We, we pray that you would help us to live it. Oh, God, we would be delighted if people were to, to look at our church and say, oh, that's a congregation that loves peace. And they love one another. And they, they love Jesus Christ. And, and boy, they celebrate God's kindness. That would be our great pleasure, our great delight for us to be known by these things. You have purchased peace. You have brought us grace. You have loved us. You have called us to believe and how thankful we are to you for it. And we celebrate it with great delight. Help us to do so evermore, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.